Okay, the believer's victory is what we want to talk about now. We're For the rest of this afternoon, we're going to now start to dive into some of the application of what we've been talking about. Uh, so we touched on a little bit of the application last night with the most important thing you'll do as a response, which is surrender to God and let God make this real to you. But now, after that surrender, and after the, going through the cross, and coming to understand your righteousness, now how do we live, and, and, and that sort of thing. That's what we're going to talk about uh, for, the rest, for the rest of our conference. So very practical and application-oriented, but not if you think formulas is application. Uh, I will not give you a formula to the Christian life, because there is no formula to the Christian life. And if someone sells you a formula to the Christian life, then I hope you didn't pay for it because there is no such thing. Isn't the formula Jesus? Well, that's my, you stole my thunder. Um, you can come and teach now. So there is one formula, that's Jesus. John 14, 6, I am the way. So he is the only way. He is the formula. But it's not a rule, you know, six steps all beginning with the letter P and so forth. It's not that kind of a formula. Because it's trusting and knowing Jesus. So what we want to look at now is now the believer's victory on page 37 of your notes. And some questions that people often hear is, okay, if I'm a believer, if Jesus is my life, if I'm actually presently righteous, then why do I still sin? I think that's a valid question. That's an important question. In fact, I think if we can answer that question then that really can help understand what it means that we're to be righteous. Another question is, why do I still have bad thoughts? This might surprise you, but you're not the only person to have bad thoughts. In fact, every single person who has ever walked the earth has had bad thoughts. Every person. So who's included in that list? Jesus. Does that mean that Jesus sinned? No. But he had bad thoughts. How do I know? Because he was tempted. The moment Jesus was tempted, a thought entered into his mind to sin. He said, no, of course. But nonetheless, he had the bad thoughts. So, where are these bad thoughts coming from? Is the question that we need to answer. Maybe you think, maybe there's just something wrong with me. Well, that's not the case. Because, as we said, everybody who's walked the face of the earth has had bad thoughts. And then there's someone who might go the other way and say, well, if I'm righteous by Christ's obedience, I can do whatever I want. I can just go sin, 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 right? And the answer is, God forbid. The answer really is, why would you? Why would you? And the answer then in Romans 6 is, is, do you not know? Have you not heard that you died to sin? And so as Christians, as righteous people, we don't actually want to sin. Now, the world's method of achieving victory is not so effective because all these things, law, education, psychology, behavior modification, religion, government, all they're trying to do is change man by changing the behavior. Now, does that mean the law doesn't have a purpose? No, it's got a great purpose. It's to show that he can't. But it's not meant to be something that he's to live up to because it's not going to work that way. So the problem with the world's method is it's always just trying to change the behavior. And you can change the behavior, but if that's all you change, so what? I mean, if you have an unbeliever who's abusive towards his wife, and you get him to stop being abusive, I mean, the wife will be appreciative, don't get me wrong, but have you really helped him if all you've done is change the behavior? You haven't accomplished anything. 
What we're looking for is a far deeper victory, which will inevitably impact the behavior, but we're looking for something far more significant. So before we get into it, let's again, we're going to start with some deceptions regarding victory. And again, what's a deception? A lie that looks like truth, or a lie wrapped in truth. And so, here are some deceptions regarding victory. Romans chapter 7 is normal. What does Romans chapter 7 refer to? If someone came up to you and says, I'm, I'm just having a Romans 7 kind of day, what are they referring to? Um, well, it's the one where it's like he's got like uh, almost two, like, um, like a double identity or whatever, uh, where he's saying, like, don't do this, but I feel like... Yeah, it's not a double identity, as we'll see, but it's this idea of I'm not doing what I want to do, and I'm doing the very thing I don't want to do. Oh, what a miserable man that I am. That's passage in the second half of chapter 7 of Romans. And so many people look at it and say, here, see, here is Paul's struggle in the Christian life. Meaning, that is what you and I are destined to go through. You too are also going to be destined to go through a life of struggle. Isn't that exciting? Isn't that something to look forward to in the Christian life? A life of struggle where we're just so miserable at the end of it. Well, that's not the case. I I do think Paul was going through something significant, and we'll look at that as we go on this afternoon. But if you study that passage, beginning in verse 14 to 23, in that passage, in those verses, Paul uses the personal pronoun, I, me, or myself, almost three times per verse. You know how many times the word Holy Spirit appears? Zero. Not once. Who's trying to live the Christian life? Paul is. In fact, in the greater context of Romans, it's in Paul's letter, Paul's chapter on addressing trying to live by the law. And so before that, he talked about how he was trying to not covet because I thought, he thought then he'd be a better Christian and honor God more, only to realize that it produced with him every kind of covetous desire. So Romans 7 is a picture of the Christian trying to live the Christian life in his own strength. And it's not working. But then he moves into chapter 8 where the word spirit appears over and over and over again, which some have called the victory chapter. And that's the life that God intended for you and I. Now, Romans 7 may be the typical Christian life for some, but it's not the life that God has come to give us. It's not the life He intended for you and I. Another is, it's a constant battle with no real victory until we get to heaven. Again, isn't that really exciting? Or, victory is understanding my sins are forgiven. Well, that sounds good, but if my sins are forgiven, and knowing my sins are forgiven... How does that help me for today? I mean, suppose I tear a strip off my wife and I I yell at her and I'm angry with her and to the point where I just crush her spirit. And then the next day, or even maybe afterwards, Father says, you know, Ross, that was wrong. You need to go apologize, make it right. And I go to her and I say, thank you, Lord, for forgiving me. I apologize to her. I know I'm forgiven. But how does that help me today and tomorrow and the next day? How does being forgiven prevent me from sinning in the first place? Because all the blood of Jesus does is take care of when I fail. But it can't prevent me from failing. So victory's got to be far more. Because as wonderful as it is to be forgiven, I'd rather prefer not to sin. What about you? Victory is automatic with time and old age. The idea that I'm just going to get so old that I won't have the energy and stamina to sin, sin like I used to. 
that you know I won't be able to stay up late to watch those late night movies that I shouldn't watch, or my my hip and my knee will be so out of joint and so out of place, I just won't be able to chase after the girls like I used to. And every time I come up with an idea to sin, I just fall asleep, and then I'll be then I'll be a a righteous person. Is that the case? No. Can you go back and flush out a little bit, number two? Constant battle with no real victory until heaven. Um, okay, maybe in its whole, I understand. Um, but I'm here I'm thinking the fact that we're living in the world where Satan rules, and Satan is our enemy. Yep. And we're going to be in battle. Absolutely. But here's the thing. It's not constant battle. Okay. It's constant battle with victory. no victory. Because at the end of chapter 8, Paul says we're overwhelmingly more than conquerors. Right? So, it's not, not that it's no battle. battle. No. What did we say last night? Yeah. There's great battle, great suffering, great tribulations going on. But you can have real victory through it. Another deception is victory is when I don't sin. That sounds good, doesn't it? I mean, we just talked about I'd rather not sin. But remember, let's go back to that case of the unbeliever who's been abusive toward his wife and he stops being abusive now. Have we really accomplished anything? Well, here's a person now that no longer sins in the sense he's no longer abusive to his wife. But out of what energy, what resources did he accomplish that victory? Was it by the Spirit of God or by the flesh? Well, as an unbeliever, what, it, what does it have to be? It has to be the flesh. Because God doesn't live in him. And we're not looking for fleshly victories. We're looking for spiritual victories. We're looking for more than just a moral life. I am convinced Adam and Eve before the fall did not live a moral life. I am convinced Jesus did not live a moral life. Not in the sense that he didn't do anything wrong, but in the sense that he lived something far greater than a moral life. He lived a supernatural life that, oh, by the way, happened to look moral, but that wasn't the goal. He wasn't trying to achieve morality. He was living a supernatural life. And so the victory for you and I is not living a moral life. Victory for you and I is Jesus living through us. Victory is a person named Jesus Christ. That's what we're looking for. Another one is victory is the absence of conflict or persecution. And you're right, we're in a battle. We are surrounded by a battle. You don't have to look for it. You're in it. And so it's not the absence of conflict and persecution. In fact, the more you are walking in victory, the more conflict and persecution you may find yourself in. Read the book of Acts. Look at the life of Paul and the other apostles and the abuse that they went through. Victory comes with struggling and effort. Well, if that were the case, then the church would be far more victorious today. Because again, I mean, people work hard and they struggle and they, they, they dedicate themselves, but it just doesn't come. Because it's not about self-effort. Remember what Jesus said, Come unto me all that are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Victories in Jesus. Victory is only reserved for the select few. I remember counseling one lady and she said, Well, you know, victory is reserved for you people. But someone like me, I just don't have a chance. It's kind of like, you know, Billy Graham and the Apostle Paul and, and so forth. They, they have, you know, special kind of powers. Well, they do have special powers, but what's their special power? Jesus. And the same Jesus that lived in Paul and lives in Billy Graham lives in you. 
And so victory is reserved for the select few in the sense it's reserved for his saints, which includes who? You. So you're part of it. The next two uh, deceptions are very similar. One is it's the old man that's coming back to life again or the idea that I have these two natures. And so what's happening is when I'm sinning, either the old man comes up or it's my sinful nature and therefore I've given into that and that's why I'm sinning. The problem with that is that really goes against what Scripture is saying. And I understand what they're trying to do. They're trying to explain things, but they're not letting Scripture explain things. They're letting their experience and their own opinion and logic explain things. And we get our teaching not from our logic, not from our experience, but from the Scriptures. And I think if we if we call it what Scriptures call it, we have a far better chance at understanding what, what the battle is. And if I know the battle and I understand the battle, then I have a better chance at winning the battle. But if I don't know the battle, then I'm going to often be drawn into shadow boxing myself while the enemy just punching me in the back of the head, not realizing what's going on. So with that, then let's kind of dive into this on page 39 of your notes. We're going to do a bit of review from what we talked about last night with our three-part man here. And being the unbeliever, the, he is an unregenerate or old Adam spirit, the old man. And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at and review these three different aspects of him um, to kind of build something to work off of. So as a point of review, with the spirit, uh, we realize that in Ephesians 2.1 that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, meaning that we were without the life of God in our spirit. That doesn't mean that the spirit was dead and, and missing, but it didn't have the life of God. It was, like we use the analogy, it was a bit like a walking zombie. Romans 3.23, Paul says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. How can Paul make such a confident statement? I mean, Paul doesn't know me, but he's right, by the way. But how does he know that I've sinned and come short of the glory of God? How does he know you've sinned and come short of the glory of God? How do I know you've sinned and come short of the glory of God? Because we are all in Adam. And since we are all in Adam, when he sinned, we all sinned. In Romans 5.19, we learn that we were made sinners. In Romans 6.17, we used to be a slave of sin. So we were dead, we had sinned, we're sinners, and we're a slave of sin. Again, not very pretty, but now let's look at the soul. And in looking at the soul, I want to focus in on the mind in particular, because this is really where the battlefield is going to be, but that's where a lot of Paul spends his time writing when he's talking about the soul. And in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, it says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of those who believe not. What does a blinded mind mean? Can't see. Can't see. Do you have any friends that are not Christians who when you try to share Jesus with them, say something to this effect, I'm a good person, I'll be okay, you know, I'm going to heaven because of all the good things I've done. Or maybe they just say there is no God. Well, what are they, what are they evidencing? What are they proving? Their mind is blinded to the truth. They're blinded to the fact that they're sinners. They're blinded to the fact that there is a God. They're blinded to the fact that they're in need of salvation. And it's all done by the God of this world, the small g God of this world. That's Satan. Colossians 2.18, the unspiritual mind puffs him up. What does puffed up mean? Pride. So their answer is, I'm better off than I, than they think they're better off than they are. 
And then in Colossians 1.21, they're alienated and hostile in their mind. Which is why so many atheists, they, they rail against God. They attack God. Because they're really, they're hostile towards God in their mind. And then Ephesians 4.18, the Gentiles are walking in the futility of their mind. They're walking in the futility of their knowledge. And that's something that's, that plagues our North American culture. We think it's the more you know, the better off you are. And knowledge is good, but knowledge sometimes puffs up. Knowledge sometimes gets in the way. It's not that I'm discounting knowledge, it's just not the be-all and end-all. A real simple example is, do you want to know about a kiss, or do you want to know and experience a kiss? I mean, a kiss is, you know, to know about the knowledge of it, it's, you know, two mouths coming together, exchanging bodily fluids. Isn't that a pretty thought? So do you want to know about a kiss, or do you want to know and experience a kiss? Well, I don't want to just know about Jesus, I want to know Jesus, right? But the Gentiles are just walking in the futility of their mind, thinking it's all about information and knowledge, and if I have enough knowledge, that will be enough. And that's not it at all. So if we were to kind of summarize this then, we have in the Spirit, He's dead, He'd sinned, He's a sinner and a slave of sin. If we were to kind of try to summarize that up, we might just say, this person's spirit is a slave to sin. Whereas in their soul, we talked about how they're blinded in their mind, they're puffed up, they're hostile, and they're walking in the futility of their mind. In essence, we might just say they're blinded. They don't realize what's really going on. They're clueless as to the reality of what's happening. Alright, so that's kind of a review for the spirit and soul. Any questions so far? Okay, let's talk about the body now. And this might be a little new, I'm not sure. But in Romans 6 and verse 12, Paul says, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Now it's interesting, this word sin in Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 appears 41 times. How many times? 41 times. 40 of the 41 times, sin is a noun. What's a noun? A person, place, or thing. So, when Paul, 40 of the 41 times in Romans 6, 7, 6, 5, 6, 7, and 8, when he's talking about sin, he's not talking about the action or the verb of sin. Instead, he's talking about something, some entity called sin. And what he says is, do not let this entity called sin reign in your mortal body. Now, the Queen of England reigns where? In England. And so where did she reside? In England. If Paul is saying, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, where do you suppose it resides? In our body. So on your diagram, I've got this thing called sin in the body. Now, sin is not the flesh. What sin is trying to get us to do is rely upon the flesh. But sin is this entity or this power, you might think of it as, whereas flesh is just the ways of living, the ways of coping. So what sin's trying to do is get me to rely upon my flesh. Now, the question is, where did this sin come from? Well, in Romans 5.12, Paul says that when Adam ate from the tree... When he, when he disobeyed God, sin entered the world. So the moment Adam ate from that tree of knowledge of good and evil, sin entered the world and everything in this world. So everything in this world is now 
you know, infected by sin in some way. Hence the reason we're all marching and moving towards death in this world. Trees die, houses fall down, our bodies wear out. It's because of this sin that leads to death principle that's in our bodies. That doesn't make the body evil, just means that there's sin in there, as we'll see as we go on. Now, when it talks about in Romans 6 then that we were a slave to sin, it's not talking about the action of sin. Instead, it's really saying that we were in bondage to this thing called sin. So if as unbelievers we were slaves to sin, what was sin to us? It was our master. Meaning, sin would master and does master the unbeliever. So, this is important, I think, to know and recognize, because sometimes as Christians, we get shocked when unbelievers sin. Should we be surprised when an unbeliever sins? No. I mean, he's just doing as he's told. He is under the dominion and the control of sin. That doesn't mean every action is going to be immoral. Because sin's goal is not just immorality. Sin's goal is to keep you away from Jesus. And sometimes the best way to keep you away from Jesus is morality. Look at the Pharisees. They followed all the rules and they were the furthest from Jesus compared to the sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. They knew they needed Jesus. The Pharisees who lived the moral life didn't recognize it. So sin's goal isn't just to get you to live immorality, but rather to keep you away from Jesus. So this entity, this principle of sin that's in your body. Now, on page 38 of your syllabus, if you go back a page, you can see here about this sin principle that this later on it's called the law of sin and death. This law is a rule or principle stating something that always works in the same way under the same conditions. You see, we have, we have a couple different basic laws in our world. For example, we have the laws of traffic, the traffic laws. So when you're driving a car, the red light means to stop, green light means go, and don't talk on your cell phone, and so forth. That is a written code of conduct that we're to follow. But then there's some other laws, laws of nature. For example, when I let go of the remote, what's going to happen? It will fall. Why is it falling and breaking apart? Other than my klutzy hands. Why, why does it fall down? The law of gravity, right? Sometimes we might refer to it as gravity. Other times we're calling it the law of gravity or the principle or the force of gravity, which is pulling it down. And every time I let go, it's going to fall. How many times will it fall? Because gravity is taking hold of it. What if I don't believe in gravity? What if I don't acknowledge gravity? In fact, I will prove to you I don't believe in gravity. I will crawl crawl up onto this roof and I will jump off the roof to prove to you that I don't believe in gravity. What will happen? Gravity will quickly introduce itself to me, right? So gravity doesn't care whether I believe it or not. It's going to act. In the same way, the law of sin doesn't care if I acknowledge it, understand it, know about it. It's going to do what it's going to do. And it will always do that until the conditions are changed. Meaning, I let go of the remote, it's going to continue to fall until I change the conditions. If I introduce another hand to hold the remote and I let go with this hand, what happens to the remote? It doesn't fall. Well, why? Because I changed the conditions. I introduced another force, another power that altered everything. Okay? 
that will be important for where we come when we come back later on. So the noun sin, sometimes referred to as indwelling sin, is a law or principle or force that is operating within us. It may be helpful to think of it as the source of temptation within a person. So in Romans six six is talking about sin as being this body of sin, this entity, this this um, thing of sin. So let's get the guy saved. Sorry, not yet. We'll deal with the unbeliever first. And understand what is sin doing in our bodies here. In Romans 7.23, it says that I see, Paul says, I see a different law in the members of my body, referring to this law of sin or this principle of sin, waging war against the law of my mind. So it's attacking and fighting my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin. Meaning what sin is doing is it's dropping thoughts into my mind to get me to do what it wants me to do. Now, anyone in sales, marketing? If you were, uh, or if you ever are, here is the number one greatest guaranteed to work marketing technique and tool. For example, if I wanted you to get, get, if I wanted you to buy my car, in fact, I want you to buy my car for more than it's actually worth, how could I do that? Somebody else wants it close. What about getting you to want it? If I could somehow convince you that you want the car, it's close to what the deserving part is. If I could somehow convince you that it's your idea to buy my car, then you'll come to me. And then I can turn you down. And then you'll up your price. And I can turn you down again. And you'll up your price. And then you'll you'll buy it. But it's because I somehow convinced you to get it. Um, anyone see the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding? You could admit to it. It's okay. I won't judge you. I've seen it. Um, the, there's a character in there, Tula. She's the Greek lady. And um, her parents own a Greek restaurant, but she would love to go work at her aunt's travel agency. And mom and aunt are on board, but then they realize that papa won't go for it. So mom and aunt say, don't worry, leave it to us. And so they go and they sit down in the booth of the restaurant with papa and Aunt begins to lament. Oh, we're having this trouble. Oh, if only someone like Tula could come where there's techniques and skills and computers and oh, that would make it so much easier. If only that could come. Maybe we could trade, you know, your son, my son for your, for your daughter. Oh, if only we could do something like that. And Papa's thinking, goes, ah, I know. We will send you Tula. You will send us your boy. We'll make a trade. What a brilliant idea you just came up with. Wow, yes, it was. Thank you very much. So immediately he's thinking it's whose idea? His. But in reality, whose idea was it? Theirs. But they presented it to him. They put it in his mind in a way to make him think it was his idea. And that's what sin is doing. It's dropping thoughts into your mind. See, what I want you to understand is not all thoughts are your thoughts. Do you understand that principle? That sometimes people will put thoughts into your mind. For example, I'm doing that right now. When you watch TV, they're putting thoughts into your mind. When you're listening to a sermon, they're putting thoughts into your mind. When you're reading a book, they're putting thoughts into your mind. All sorts of things. And that's what sin's going to do. It's going to drop these thoughts into your mind. Except what it's going to do is it would be really obvious if it said you should do this. Instead, it's going to say I should do this because it wants to stay undercover. It wants to sound like you. 
It wants to talk like you. It will use your verbs, your language. It will use your uh, your accent. It knows your pe- past, your history. It will push all those buttons, and it will talk like you. It will sound like you, and therefore you will think it's who? You. And that's what sin is trying to do. Trying to therefore make me a prisoner of itself. Does that make sense? So that's what sin's doing. And it's going to continue to do so as long as there's no other powers introduced. As long as the conditions remain the same. Does that make sense? So let's get the conditions changed by getting the guy saved there on page 40. And to do so, we're going to go through an Old Testament prophecy that will explain the new covenant that we have now that we're under. So in Ezekiel 36, verse 25... God says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Now, this is one of those moments where I'm really excited that we have the New Testament, we understand the New Testament, and we look back on the old prophecies, and now we can understand exactly what those prophecies are talking about. So what is the clean water? What does God use to cleanse us from all our filthiness and idols? The blood of Jesus. Yeah, it wasn't a trick question. It was... Yeah, yeah, this one's not Moses, okay? So, it's the blood of Jesus. So, watch. Here's my sins, okay? Watch. We are going to demonstrate this now, where what Jesus has done and what He's prophesying. Okay, you ready? You watching? This, This is fancy. We spent a lot of money on this. So, here it comes. Here comes the cleansing. Here it comes. You ready? Not bad, eh? That's pretty special and fancy. Now, aside from the really simple and foolish, I I make a point to this. You see, what's left? Nothing. What was there before? There were sins. And then along came the blood of Christ. And does it just cover our sins? No. If it covered our sins, what would be left? Our sins. What we have, what we've done is we said Jesus is atoned the sins of the world. And that is not true. Atonement means to cover. And atonement is an old covenant word because that's all the blood of lambs and goats could do. They could cover the sins, but they never took them away. Instead, Jesus has propitiated our sins. Now, propitiation is a big word that we don't typically use. And so we tend to drop it. But propitiation and atonement are not the same things. Whereas atonement means to cover, propitiation means a wrath-averting sacrifice. Meaning, what Jesus has done is that He has literally taken away our sins. Hence the reason, they're gone. They're no longer here. Do you see it? Do you see the power of that? I was so excited when I saw this. I remember I came running up to go tell my wife, and I said, Viarda, Viarda, do you see this? Jesus, He never covered our sins. He took them away. And she goes, yeah, same thing. I said, no, no, it's not the same thing. He took them away. They're gone. Yeah, covered them. I said, no, I'm going back and forth for five minutes. And then I finally gave up for her and decided to pray for her soul. <laughs> and it probably said more about my teaching. But but I, I gave up and I walked away. And, and then a couple days later, old Slewfoot comes along and begins to whisper into her mind. Brings up some of her past and her sins, and immediately, how did she feel? Guilty, condemned, 
shamed. And then you know what Jesus whispered into her ear? I took that away. It's gone. What does he say in Jeremiah and then again quoted in Hebrews? I will remember your sins on judgment day and not before. Yeah, I will remember your sins no more. We will come for judgment, but not in reference to your sins. Why? Because he took them away. They're gone. Doesn't matter what sin you've done, how many times you've done it, in Christ, because of what he has done in his sacrifice, for one time, for all time, he has removed your sins from you. They're gone. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that glorious? There's freedom there. There is no more condemnation now because what's there to condemn you about? Nothing. Amen? So that's good news, right? That's incredible, right? But that's not the whole gospel. For some, that's all the gospel. But look what verse 26 begins with. What's the first word of verse 26? Moreover. What does moreover mean? Even more. I'm not done yet. Keep reading. Don't stop at verse 25. There's more. What's more? I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. You see, in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah, he said in 17.9, he said that the heart of man is deceitful and wicked, is beyond cure. Who can understand it? That's true about the heart of this person, the unbeliever. But then God comes and says, I'm going to give you a new heart, new spirit, new desires. You have a new heart. But again, you're kind of like a one-car garage. So in order to get the new heart, what's he got to do? He's going to have to remove the old one. And so he says, goes on, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So again, knowing the New Testament, knowing what we've talked about, looking back on it, what is, uh, how is it that God has removed the old heart? What instrument did God use to take care of that? The cross, right? Where he put the old man on that cross in order to crucify him, bury him, in order that he could give us a new one. Look at Romans 6, 6 and 7 again. For we know the old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be rendered powerless, that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. So what he's done is he took the slave and he crucified him on that cross. Meaning, who does sin now control? No one. Because he's dead and gone. Do you understand that? The greatest way to set the slave free is to kill him. Now he may not like that so much, which is why then God's going to give us a new spirit. And now this new person is no longer in bondage to sin. There's freedom. Complete and total freedom. Sad thing is we're a bit like Harry Houdini. We don't know the freedom we have. And so we're stuck in our prison cell trying to pick the lock that isn't locked anymore. Does that make sense? So old is gone, crucified on the cross. New has come, new person, new spirit. But watch this, because he's not done yet. Verse 27, first word. And there's more. Keep reading. Don't stop. 
and I will put my spirit within you. Now, who's talking? God is. Have you ever heard something so many times that it begins to lose its impact and power? This happened to me. And then one day I was reading it and then God just hit me right between the eyes with it. He said, Ross, read it again. Okay, all right. Uh, and I'll put my spirit with... Ross, who's the my? Well, I guess that's you. See, you and I, we have God. God Himself. All-powerful, almighty, all-incredible God living in itty-bitty tiny old you and me. God Himself lives in you. That blows my mind. That's absolutely incredible to me that God would be in me. That I would have Him. And sometimes I think we lose sight of this awesome fact that God lives inside of us. Everywhere you go, He's there. Wanting to live now in us. So what happens now is God puts His Spirit within us. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians 6.17, He says, He who has joined Himself to the Lord is now one. Truth be told, we should get rid of this line. Because we're now joined. We're one with Him. And you cannot separate that oneness. He's one. 1 Corinthians 6.17 Well, why? Well, why does He do it? So that you will be careful to observe his ordinance is to walk in his statutes, to walk in his ways. Well, let's understand that. Anyone know who this person is? Mike Weir. Uh, good Canadian golfer, having a little bit of a rough patch right now. But my illustration used to use a different golfer, but he got into some trouble, and I thought I might want to take him off the illustration. Uh, we'll leave him unnamed, though. Okay? Uh, but here is Mike Weir. Uh, who won the Masters? Masters Golf Championship. How many people know what the Masters is for golf? It is the golf tournament to win. It is the greatest one out in Augusta, Georgia. And, um, you know, for me, I'm not much of a golfer, but, um, you know, my golf involves clowns and windmills, so this is my golf. But, but for, you know, real golfers, this is the 18th hole of the Augusta. And if you knew that, I would, I would, you know, think you need some help of recognizing the whole picture. But, uh, but here is the 18th hole of Augusta, and you know, it is every golfer's dream to sink that final putt into the 18th hole and win the championship. Because you know what you get when you win? Yeah, it's not just a green sport coat, an ugly green sport coat, right? So here it is with the unnamed golfer handing, putting on him the green sport coat. Isn't that incredible? Yeah, I don't quite get it either. Um, I don't know what the big deal is, but, but suppose, suppose I wanted the green sport coat and I wasn't willing to go down to Zellers and buy one. So I wanted an authentic Augusta Masters green sport coat. That was my desire, my goal. And so I go to Mike and I say, Mike, you've won this. And you know about golf. I don't. Will you teach me and train me everything you know about golf? Okay, I can do that. 
Now, it's going to cost you some money. No worry. I got all the money in the world. I will pay you. And for the next two years, I pay Mike Guir to follow him and do everything he does. I eat, breathe, and sleep golf with Mike Guir to the point where everything he knows about golf, I now have. Two years later, I say to him, okay, Mike, do you think I'm ready to win the Masters? What would he say to me? <laughs> no, not even close. Really? I mean, for two years, I know everything about golf you know. And you won the Masters. Why can't I win? Well, Ross, there's, there's one thing you are missing. Talent. <laughs> A little thing called ability and skill. You simply don't have what it takes to do it. Because you see, the problem is, if Mike Weir teaches me and trains me to play golf, it's still me doing it. I may have all the knowledge, but I don't have the power and the ability to pull it off. And so I'm crushed. I'm devastated. And Mike Weir sees this, that my hope, my dream of winning the green sport coat is now gone. So he says, well, there is one way. There is one way you can win. Really, what is it? Well, what we can do is we can unzip you from the top of your head down the back of your left leg, and I can actually step inside of you. Now, if you haven't figured out by now my story is fictional, when I said I had lots of money, it went off the rails at that point, okay? So this is a completely fictional story. But he says, I can unzip you, and I can step inside of you, and now when I'm inside of you, you have all my talent and all my skill and all my, my ability. And I can play golf in you. Really? Yeah. Well, let's do it. Because I want the green sport coat. So he goes, finds a zipper, unzips, and he steps into me. And now I possess all the talent and ability of Mike Weir. So I go down to Augusta, Georgia, and I walk on as an amateur. And I step up to that first tee. And they, the announcers say, well, we have this Ross Gilbert guy. We're not sure who he is. He's, he's an unknown person, but he's getting up there. And here he goes. And I go and I swing. And I hit the ball straight for maybe the first time in my life. And then the announcer might say something like this. You know, his swing reminds me a lot like Mike Weir. Well, why is that? Because when I got up there, who did I trust in? I trusted in Mike Weir. I trusted in him to pick the club. I trusted in him to get ready. I trusted in him to swing the club. And it was Mike Weir doing it through me, but it looked like me. But the reality is it was Mike Weir. Well, in a way, that's the gospel. You see, if Mike Weir could put himself in me, then he could play through me. And that's exactly what God is talking about in Ezekiel 36, 27. I will put my spirit, my life, my power within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes, and I will cause you to be careful to observe my ordinances. It's not an external set of rules and regulations that keep me on track. It's who? It's God himself. Who's going to do it? And all he's needing is for me to trust him to do that. Philippians 2.13 For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In the gospel according to Mike Weir, it could read this. Mike Weir is now in me in order to pick the club and then to swing it according to his good pleasure. Well, God is in you to decide what to do and then to do it. That's why we don't have the rules and regulations. We've got the better. We've got God. He'll let us know. 
And then the key is, let Him do it through you. Trust Him to live. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 So the one who calls you is faithful, and He will do it. So He's going to tell me what to do. And then He's going to pull it off as I trust in Him. And then finally, Psalm 37.5 Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He will do it. He will bring it to pass. He will be the one to make it happen. So what I need to do is I need to trust God who lives in me and then He will now cause me to walk in His ways. The only question is, will I trust Him? Will I allow Him to do so? Okay? So here we have now God in us, in my new spirit, but notice what didn't die. The old man died, but sin didn't die. And so sin is still in my body, and it's still now waging war. So when Paul says in Romans 7.23, I see his different law, this different principle of sin, waging war with the law of my mind. Basically what it's saying, the law of my mind basically says, I want to be the very best Christian I can be. That's what I want to do, right? I, Paul says in Romans 7.22, I joyfully concur with the law of God. Because what the law of God is saying is to love people. And I want to love people. I have no problem with that. So I joyfully concur with it. But I see this other principle, this other force that's waging war, dropping thoughts into my mind, trying to make me a prisoner of itself. Right? But notice, notice the great conclusion of Romans 7. In verses 17 and 20, he almost says the identical thing. He says in verse 17, No longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. In verse 20, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Almost word for word. Now, we've talked about this. If you repeat something to your child, it's for what purpose? Because you're trying to make the point. So if you repeat something to somebody, you're trying to make the point. If you repeat something, you get the point? Or do I need to repeat myself? What do you think he's trying to say? Because there's an important point that he's trying to make here. Sin is not us. You see, he's, he's come to the conclusion that I'm not doing what I want to do. In fact, I'm doing everything I don't want to do. But when I'm doing that, then it's no longer me doing it, but sin that dwells in me. He's not saying, I'm not the one that did it. So Hezekiah, when I came up and I slapped you in the face the other day, I'm sorry, that wasn't me. I don't know who it was, but it wasn't me. It was sin, but not me. No, he's responsible for his actions. What he's saying is that the options or the idea to sin did not originate with him, but from this entity called sin. Let me, uh, let me illustrate this to you. Uh, Juanita. Can you, can you look at Ian for a moment there? This wonderful young pastor who thankfully isn't going to leave his wife, so we're awfully happy about that. Um, but um, it was close for a while. And, and I think, you know, might be to knock some sense into him. Can you just start to slap him? Like, like, pre- like pretend he's on fire slapping. I mean, just, just wail away. Go ahead. Wait, cross the face personally, preferably. Go ahead. I want to see bruising afterwards. Slap him across the face as hard as you can. Go ahead. That's a good... Binder to work. Go ahead. Go ahead. Do it. 
I can't believe you would even think about doing that. I mean, he's a pastor for goodness sake. He was never going to leave his wife. It was a joke. And you want to slap him with your binder and bruise him? Maybe knock some teeth out? Bloody him? Why? Where would you ever come up with an idea like that? (laughs) It didn't start with you. It started with me. And that's what sin does. But again, it's far more subtle. It's trying to drop it in with eyes and knees and, and so forth. And with Juanita, it's never going to be slap the person because that's not Woody's nature. But instead, it's going to be something that would appeal to her. Something in her past that would touch, touch all the right buttons that would kind of say, you know what, that's how I used to live. And it's going to sound a lot like the old Juanita. And then we'd be tempted to do it. And so sin is dropping these thoughts, but Paul comes to the great conclusion, it's not me. Sin is not me. Meaning I actually am righteous. See, what's the last thing every surgeon does for every surgery? Regardless of the surgery, all surgeons do this last thing before they, before they sew you up. What do they do? They count all the tools and all the bandages and all the cotton swabs. For the reason, why do they count? In case, in case they left one inside. Well, suppose with your son-in-law, or suppose with me, they took my appendix out, and they learned the lesson the hard way that they should count all the tools and instruments. And so with me, they left a clamp inside by accident. They sew me up. I go home. What's going to happen with this clamp? It's probably going to get inflamed. I bend over the wrong way. It's going to poke me and jab me. It's going to cause me some problems. Would you agree? So I go see the doctor. See, doc, after the surgery, I've got something wrong here. This just doesn't look right. This doesn't feel right. What's wrong? He touches it. I scream and I punch him. And so he says, okay, I'm not doing that testing anymore. Uh, you go get an x-ray. He sends me for an x-ray. I come back and he says, I've got great news. Really? What's the news? You find out the problem? Better. I found my clamp. And really where it's in you. So I've got his clamp inside me. Now, is the clamp me? But is it causing me problems? Yes. That's what sin is. It's the clamp. It's in you, but it is not you. Sin <laughs> sin dwells. It's just a story. Just a story. Sorry to ruin it for you. It's just I made it up on the spot. Uh, so sin is in you. But it's not you. But it's causing you all kinds of problems by attacking you, getting you to think it's you. And if I think it's me, then I'm going to do it because that's just who I am. But if I could recognize that's not me, I can now say no to it. I could recognize it as my old master and say, I don't want to live that way anymore. Now, the problem is what we often do with sin is we say, well, I don't want to sin. Let's introduce some law to that. Let's introduce some rules to that. Well, what happens the moment you and I introduce the law to sin? It inflames it. It empowers it. It strengthens it. And now I'm sunk. Because the moment I introduce law, I'm no longer living by faith. Faith and law are opposites. You can't live by faith with the law. The law requires no faith. So the moment I'm living by the law, I'm no longer living and trusting in God's Spirit. I'm not trusting in my own power, and sin kicks my butt every time. 
I don't stand a chance. And it overcomes me. Because it's deceived me into thinking that's the way to live. Look at Romans 7. So Romans 7, 5. The sinful passions which are aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me every coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law. I was walking and trusting in Jesus. But then the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. Why? Well, because I thought... In verse next verse, verse 11, he says, I thought that this commandment was going to produce life. Sorry, I found that the very commandment that I thought was going to intend to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every covetous desire, deceived me, and through it, through the commandment, it put me to death. So the law doesn't help me. The law empowers sin that kills me, that overcomes me. That's why law is not the answer. That's the why we don't throw more law at it. Because it never helps sin, it only makes it worse. Look in 1 Corinthians 15, 56 and 57. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law of God. But, thanks be to God who gives us victory through who? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Victory is a person. It's not a program, it's not rules and regulations, it's not a formula to follow. It's a person named Jesus Christ. And so in Romans 8, 1 and 2, it says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Remember I said that this remote will drop until I change the conditions and I put another hand on it? The same thing with the law of sin. It will operate the same way until we introduce a new law, which is the law of the Spirit and life in Christ Jesus. Now, how many people have flown on an airplane before? So most people, everyone's here, you've been on an airplane, you're flying 30,000 feet, you got your trade table down and the pen sitting on the trade table and you hit a little bit of turbulence and now that pen starts moving for the trade table and it goes over the edge. What happens to the plant, to the pen when you're flying at 30,000 feet? But you're flying at 30,000 feet. It falls. Why? Because gravity. Gravity is operating on the plane, right? So, is, um, is gravity the plane? No, but it's operating within the plane. It's operating on the plane, even though the plane's flying. Well, then how is this plane flying at 30,000 feet? Lift. Or, another word for that is the law of aerodynamics, which states, if I can get enough wind to pass over the wing, that will produce lift, allowing me to lift up. We're not that ingenious with our titles. So it will allow me to lift up to fly because that force of lift will overcome the downward force of gravity. And so the plane is able to fly even though gravity is acting on it because there is another and a greater force pushing it up. Does that make sense? Well, what we could say is then that the law of aerodynamics has set the plane free from the law of gravity. Could we not say that? Well, in my illustration, who is the plane? You and I are. And the law of gravity is the law of sin. It's a bit of a downer too. And then you have the law of aerodynamics, which is 
the law and the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. It's the life of Jesus. So what Romans 8, 2 is just saying the same thing. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and of death. Does that make sense? Now, what would happen at 30,000 feet? The pilot says, you know what? We're doing pretty good. Let's shut the engines off. I think we can make it on our own. What's going to happen to that plane? It's going down. Why? Because it has no power to lift it up, and gravity now overcomes the plane and it comes down. The same is true for you and I. The moment we stop resting and relying upon our engines, Jesus, law of sin, gravity, will overcome you and take you down. And then it will not be pretty. So the key for you and I is to continue to trust in who? Jesus. It's not a one-time thing. It's a moment-by-moment thing. Continuing to trust in Him. Does that make sense? And so it happens then in verse 3, for what the law could not do, weak as it was to the flesh, God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, as an offering for sin, He condemned the law of sin in the flesh. So if Jesus, in verse 3, condemned the law of sin, but in verse 1 says, I have not condemned you, what is He saying about sin? It's not us. And if we could begin to see this, do I now have a sinful nature? No. I have something in me called sin, but it's not my nature. It's another entity waging war with me. I actually am righteous. I actually want to do good. Did you ever realize that as a Christian, as a believer, you never really want to sin? You never really want to sin. You might say, oh, but wait, when I'm in that moment, I want to. No, you've fallen for the deception that you you want to. The reality is you don't want to. How do I know? How do you feel afterwards? You feel miserable. And that's good because that's evidence of what you really want, your real desires. If you really wanted to sin, after you sinned, you would feel good about it. You accomplished what you wanted. But when you feel that guilt, you realize, I didn't want to do this. This was not my desire at all. Look at what Paul said. I do the very thing I don't want to do. And I'm not doing the thing I want to do. We, as righteous children of God, as saints, as holy ones, we want to and we only want to live righteously. But sometimes we don't because we're deceived by something other than us called sin. It's not who I am. Now, I can't blame sin and say, well, the devil made me do it. I have no responsibility towards it because the reality is I'm free from sin. The reality is every time we sin, we made a choice to sin. But we don't have to. Let me illustrate it to you this way. So here we are. We've got our three-part man. And the sea is Christ in us. And then we've got the world out here. And the world is not the source of temptation. Instead, it's the object of temptation. The source of temptation is going to come from sin that dwells in us. But this, the world is going to act as the object of temptation. Now, to know a little bit about me, I used to race cars. I used to build and then race cars. And so for me, driving fast was or I got a lot of worth and identity from. I really like to drive fast. I like to show people how fast I could drive. 
Uh, one time my dad tried reverse psychology on me one time and said, when we're driving through the hills and curves and bends, he's a little scary. He says, well, why don't you drive faster? So I did. He never tried that again on me. So I, I would like to drive fast. Well, imagine now I'm driving my car and I look up in my mirror and I see a minivan with a soccer mom riding my tail. Just, you know, two inches from my tail. And, and that's just driving me crazy. That's the object of temptation. So sin, seeing the object, says, Aha, I know which buttons to press with Ross. He likes to prove himself, his manhood, by driving fast. So it's going to drop thoughts into my mind that says, how dare she ride that close to my bumper? I can't believe she's on my tail like that. Who does she think she is? I should show her how to drive. I should show her how to really drive fast. Or maybe I should you know, give her the, the one-fingered salute to let her know I see her. Or maybe I should just do a quick brake check and see how her reflexes are. And all these thoughts are coming into my mind, but where are they coming from? To sin. And so now my emotions are all getting riled up. Yeah, yeah. I can't. What you doing? What? Get off my tail, lady. What's going on? My emotions are all getting worked up. And now it comes to my will. And it's time to make a choice. It's time to act. What am I going to do? Well, I've got a couple options. I can rely upon my flesh. And that may look a few different ways. One, it might look like I brake check or I race off. Or I might just grip my teeth and just mumble and curse at her under my breath, of course, because that's the Christian thing to do. And, and just, just sit there and, you know, not do anything about it. The end product of either of those is at best dead works, at worst acts of unrighteousness and sins. Because it's all coming out of my flesh. But what if, what if when it came to my will, I begin to think for a second and remember some things. I remember in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5 that I'm to take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. Why do I need to take all thoughts captive? Why did you need to think about what I was telling you to do? Because not all thoughts are your thoughts. Not all thoughts are coming from you or from Jesus. Some thoughts are coming from sin. So I got to take the thought captive to Jesus. Say, Jesus, sort this out. Whose thought does this belong to? And then I begin to remember that I've been crucified with Christ. And there's no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. And the character and nature of Christ isn't to go off speeding, to do a brake check, or to curse at this woman. And he's the one that lives in me. And so then, in Romans 6, 11 and 12, I'm now to consider. Now, this consider is a very strong word. It's an accounting term. It literally means add up the facts. Add it up and reckon. Count it as a fact. Yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You see, it's these two aspects that are so important. They're two sides of a coin. i got to know I'm dead to sin, and I'm alive to God in Christ Jesus. Don't just use half. There are some who do, and it's kind of like trying to walk with one leg. So what happens if I'm only going to count I'm dead to sin, I'm just going to get nowhere fast, right? I'm dead to sin, I'm dead to sin, I'm dead to sin, I'm dead to sin, and I'm dead to sin. I'm nowhere but dizzy. Or I could do the other way that says, well, I'm alive to God, I'm righteous, I'm holy, I'm alive, but where am I? Nowhere but dizzier. It's both. i got to use both sides. It's got to be I'm dead to sin, 
but alive to God in Christ Jesus. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ now lives in me. And now I'm beginning to walk because I'm relying on these two aspects of the faith. The fact that the old me died, that sinner, and now the saint lives, the righteous child of God with Christ living in him. And therefore, it says in verse 12, do not let sin reign that you would obey its lusts. Whose desires? Sin's desires. Not your desires. Not your evil, wicked desires. Not your sinful nature. No, don't obey its desires. So in verse 13, it goes on to say, don't present yourself to sin as an instrument of unrighteousness. Instead, present yourself to God as an instrument of righteousness. So in that moment, I can present myself to sin by living out of the flesh, or I can present myself to Christ. And if I present myself to Christ, then I won't walk after the flesh. Walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. You don't want to be a legalist? Walk by the Spirit, you will not be a legalist. That's as simple as that. And so as we walk by the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And then the product is Jesus begins to live through us. And He's the one now performing the act of righteousness. So I can sit there, I can enjoy the car ride, even though soccer mom's two inches behind me. I might pull over and let her pass. Uh, Who knows? But I'm at peace. I'm experiencing victory through this great temptation rather than biting my tongue or cursing or whatever, trying to get through it. This message was recorded by Crossways to Life. It is the desire of Crossways to Life to know Jesus deeper and disciple Christians to experience life in Him through the message of the cross. For more information about our ministry, upcoming courses and events, or how to contact us, please visit our website at www.crosswaystolife.org.